Hello and welcome to a Clinical Conversations Roundtable on the career choices that newly minted internists have been making over the past decade. According to a report in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and I'm quoting, by 2018, 71% of newly certified general internists practiced as hospitalists compared with only 8% practicing as outpatient-only physicians, end quote. We've gathered a group of young internists to talk about this shift. And let me welcome our guests, Dr. Holland, Kaplan of Baylor College of Medicine and Ben, and ben Taub General Hospital, Dr. Francis Yu of Harvard Medical School and the Cambridge Health Alliance, Dr. Sneha Shah of the University of Colorado and the VA Medical Center there, Dr. Stephanie Bronthal of Brown University and Women and Infants Hospital, and Dr. Megan Rutter, who does primary care at BWH Fish Center for Women's Health as part of the Mass General Brigham Group. Welcome, and thanks for being here. I hope we can examine the reasons for the popularity of the hospitalist specialty among new internists and make some predictions about where it will lead. So let's first establish some definitions. Hospitalists practice almost exclusively in hospitals, while mixed practice physicians see patients both outside and inside the hospital. And outpatient-only physicians, well, they see only outpatients. The Annals paper points out that as a percentage of general internists, both hospitalists and outpatient-only types increased by at least a third between 2008 and 2018. But mixed practice types, you know, the people you used to see carrying little black bags and visiting their patients in the hospitals, they declined over 50%. So the question for you all, young internists, is what's caused the shift? Um, I, can, I can go ahead and jump in first. Um, Dr. Kaplan. I personally, when I kind of was deciding between inpatient and outpatient medicine, um, I felt like there was actually too much information to be able to have a good understanding of both inpatient and outpatient general medicine and be able to practice solid evidence-based medicine in both at the same time. There's just so much information in these, in these specialties now. To add to Dr. Kaplan's point. Dr. Yu. Is that the field of hospital medicine is relatively new compared to other fields in medicine. And you know, really recognizing that there's a difference in practice and medical knowledge needed for both the inpatient and the outpatient setting, which leads to, you know, the Society of Hospital Medicine actually thinking about creating hospital medicine boards that would be separate from, you know, outpatient practice. Dr. Shah. You know, Joe, I would imagine there's a fair bit of knowledge that we have in terms of escalating care to an ICU level, escalating care to subspecialty care and where the line blurs between when somebody comes in with an inpatient problem, let's say a chest pain rule out where, when should I call a cardiologist? Whereas an outpatient physician may simply be admitting them to the hospital. It's really my job to know when I should call a subspecialist. And then I think outpatient physicians do a fair bit of this where they're coordinating a patient's sort of social work type care. And in the hospital medicine setting, we do that quite a bit, knowing when the patient needs to go to a subacute rehab facility, when they might need long-term care and what the best disposition plans are. And I think all of this is becoming more and more in the realm of what a hospitalist needs to know 
on their day-to-day -day basis in working with their interdisciplinary staff, care managers, social workers, et cetera. And I think we do that a lot more um, in our day-to-day -day practice. So it's a matter of the amount of resources available to the hospitalist that makes, that changes the complexity of, of medical practice. You have immediate access to those, almost immediate access to those specialists. But here's a question that, that, that I've encountered. A relative of mine was admitted to the hospital with a GI bleed, and she has a heart problem as well. And we're getting phone calls from her saying how frustrated she was that she wasn't seeing anybody. And so, you know, Joe, the big, uh, the, I'm sorry, the younger brother goes in and says, all right, let me, let me see what, what's going on here. And so I, so the next doctor who walked into the room, I said to the doc, um, who's, who's in charge? And she said to me, oh, we don't work that way. And I went, what? <laughs> what do you mean you don't work that way? And, and she said, well, you know, it's, it's problem oriented. Um, and so that there isn't a person who's responsible for the patient's care. Now, I'm sure that the style of practice in your, uh, in, in your institutions may be very different from that. But on, on the other hand, this is, this is three years ago. And, uh, I, and I was wondering, how do you get continuity of care in an environment like that? How, when you know, somebody comes in with um, um, high blood pressure or diabetes, who do you follow up with, Dr. Brownthal? Do you remember in that specific situation, who told you that there was not one person in charge? Because I think that typically how I see the hospitalist role is that hospitalists end up being the primary care physicians of the patient while they are in the hospital. And so the question of continuity of care depends a lot on the pre-hospital care and the access to post-hospital resources. But ultimately, there is really one person or one team who's making the call of when this patient should be admitted and when this patient should be discharged. And that person should be the person who's technically in charge, even if you're in a situation in which there are multiple specialties who practice autonomously when consulted um, for the patient. When I was younger, I was a lab technician. And of course, I saw all those docs walking around with the little black bags in the hospital. Um, making rounds, um, and you don't see that much anymore. Just to add to that, Joe. Dr. Yu. I like to kind of push back on that experience because I don't think that is the experience of the majority, or at least I hope not. You know, as hospital medicine physicians, we see people for a vast array of issues. They come in with things like just a fever, and it's our job to figure out and to reason through all the information to figure out, do we need certain specialties involved? How do we reconcile all the recommendations being given? And so I really see hospitalists, as um, Dr. Bronthal has said, you know, the inpatient primary care physicians who are really teaching, you know, residents, teaching medical students doing the clinical reasoning, teaching physical exam, the glue that really holds the hospital together in the care that we provide. Point taken, Dr. Shah. I sort of think of hospital medicine, not sort of, I think of hospital medicine as the great synthesizer. Not too infrequently will we get contradicting opinions from different subspecialties. So um, in the case of say your loved one, Joe, GI physicians may have been saying, you need to give this patient more fluids or more blood, whereas cardiology may have been saying you need to diurese this patient. And so it's really up to the hospital medicine provider 
to gather the information that the different subspecialties are giving and then ultimately choose the best plan of action for that patient, knowing the, the entire reason for which they're here and not just the specific organ in which I'm a specialist. Well, you know, we have uh, Dr. Rudder with us who's, uh, who sees people as you know, primary care. And you don't, I mean, you recommend that people go to the hospital, but you don't follow them to the hospital. Yep, that's right. So if um, there's a patient that I see um, in my outpatient practice or who calls in who I think needs to be evaluated um, in an emergency care setting um, for consideration of, of admission, um, then we have a way to sort of give not necessarily a warm handoff, but through EPIC because our system, um, our hospital systems generally all use EPIC. We're able to, to put in an expect note and describe our clinical concern to the, at least to the emergency medicine team. And I think speaking just, you, you had asked a question a little bit earlier about how do we ensure continuity of care for patients who are followed by, you know, a hospitalist team on the inpatient side. It's not, it's not been too long since I've been on that side as a resident. Um, and one thing that I, I think uh, I've seen residents and hospitalists take great pride in is that handoff. Um, and so that often comes in the form of a discharge summary. Um, and the way that I've seen those done very nicely is providing a concrete list of action items for each member of the outpatient team um, with whom the hospitalist team um, expects outpatient follow-up, um, including the primary care physician. So there, there's a nice list of tasks for me as well. Um, and then that gets rooted to me um, at the time of their discharge from the hospital. Um, and then we generally have a, a nurse pool that looks into each of those um, discharge summaries, calls the patient and ensures that they're scheduled for um, you know, appropriate follow-up, whether that now is a, a telehealth visit um, to start um, or, an, or an in-office visit. Um, that's generally how that product process works that breaks down a little bit when we're doing um, sort of cross-system um, uh, continuity of care systems that aren't necessarily integrated into the same EHR, um, but generally I've seen it work fairly well um, for patients within um, a system that, that can communicate well. So we, we, we've had a couple of reasons that the, uh, for the popularity of the hospitalist specialty is is one of those uh, stable hours um, better uh, you know a guaranteed salary are, are there are there social and and uh, cultural reasons for this as well as gee I you know I have my I have access to a bunch of good specialists Dr. Kaplan um, I can jump in real quick with a response to that, uh, Joe, to start us off. Um, so I think that um, I would not say hospitalist medicine necessarily has easy hours. Um, I would say whenever I'm, I'm on service um, at the hospital, I may get there at 6 a.m. I may leave at 7 or 8 p.m., depending on, you know, the admission schedule for the day. But um, one of the things that appealed to me, um, in addition to just the appeal of general medicine um, being a field with broad differentials, kind of the intellectual nature of the specialty, fast, fast pace, 
was um, that there is this sort of like on off mentality. Um, so when I'm on, I can completely throw myself into taking care of patients, teaching residents, um, and uh, just thinking through the problems that my patients have. Um, but when I'm off, um, I have kind of other interests that I pursue as well. Um, I uh, see ethics consults, I do research, I do teaching. Um, and so that flexibility kind of allows me to be on when I'm in the hospital taking care of patients. Um, and then when I'm off, I don't need to be kind of following up on other patient care tasks and said I can fully focus on the other things that I'm working on. So I think it's a particularly um, attractive specialty for people who have a variety of interests um, so that you can pursue different different types of interests that you have. I think Dr. Brunthal. In addition to that, during residency, so much of our training is inpatient. And I think that all of us on this panel have grown into medicine with career hospitalists as our mentors as opposed to um, physicians who did both inpatient and outpatient. I think there are still some hospitals where uh, you admit to different private practice groups, but for the most part, so many of our mentors inpatient where there's a lot of camaraderie and um, emotions and intellectual growth are through hospital medicine. And so when we think of ourselves as general internists, a lot of our identity during residency is consumed in the hospital and making that shift is really difficult unless we have um, experiences outpatient or we have um, kind of a predisposition to going into outpatient medicine, uh, going into residency. Dr. Yu. And I think also to add to that, within the field of hospital medicine, many of us identify as academic hospitalists meaning clinician educators, where our focus is really to train medical students and residents in the art of the bedside physical exam and clinical reasoning and all the things that we do in the hospital. And I think um, hospitalists in particular play a large role in the majority of the med medical education of many of these trainees. And that really appeals to many of us in terms of the idea of teaching, mentorship, feedback and being involved in that teaching aspect. Dr. Rutter is, so I was talking about the regularity of the schedule for, for hospitalists. Maybe you've got the most regular schedule. Is, is that possible? In, in some ways, I think on paper, yes. <laughs> if you're including sort of my, um, my strict um, office hours, um, I think one piece of, and, and granted, I'm in my first year as a, you know, as a primary care physician um, full time. Um, but one of the pieces that I struggle with is sort of the opposite of what Dr. Kaplan was mentioning this, this feeling of sort of constantly being on. So I, I receive messages from patients at all hours of the day and night. Um, and increasingly, I think, um, our sort of society is one in which we um, expect um, timely responses to electronic in particular uh, forms of communication. And so that's something that I struggle with um, thinking about that um, in the context of my job and um, in delivering high quality clinical care and, and being the type of provider that I'd like to be for my patients. So in that sense, my my off hours don't always feel like off hours, um, but my office hours are quite regular. So, so, so you get the sense of being, in a sense, always on. In a sense, I don't know that that's something that um, 
it, you know, it's not necessarily expected by the institution, but I think it is an expectation of patients these days. Um, and it's something that is, is, you know, highly valued and appreciated by patients. Um, and so, you know, that's just, that's an area that I'm grappling with um, balancing self-care and clinical care. <laughs> Dr. Brownthal. To kind of build on what Dr. Rudder is saying, so I'm currently in a situation where I'm in a general internal medicine fellowship in which I practice outpatient one week and inpatient another week. And oftentimes we actually have the exact setup that many traditional primary care to, or traditional general internists rather had practiced where we see our outpatients when they come into the hospital. And I think that that sense of needing to be there for the patients and always being on is actually compounded when we have the both outpatient to inpatient continuum because the patients actually are used to seeing us in both scenarios and able to access our time. And I think that it's wonderful for continuity of care, but that feeling of being always on is actually additionally compounded when we have, the, when we feel a responsibility to, to know our patients inpatient and outpatient as well inside and out. Let me ask a, 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 a general question about, I mean, you've, you've made your decisions, um, although some of you may become pathologists later, I, I, I don't know, but um, what was the, as you were deciding, as you were going through your training, and, and you've mentioned this before, as, as the, uh, ha having been mentored by people uh, who are hospitalists, what was the best advice that you got as a, as a, sprouting <clears throat> new internist. Dr. Kaplan. A piece of advice that, that I got was um, to enjoy the bread and butter of whatever specialty you pursue. So enjoy kind of the typical general practice, not the rare cases um, that you see in whatever specialty or type of practice you pursue. Um, and for me, I eventually, I was initially interested in subspecializing, but I eventually realized that um, what I enjoyed most in residency was actually um, teaching and mentoring uh, medical students. And I also just enjoyed um, the opportunity to evaluate an undifferentiated patient who had any, any initial presentation, um, but who was um, coming into the hospital, was scared, was sick. And I had the opportunity to be the person who was there for them to um, kind of get them to a place that they were more comfortable, both in terms of just emotionally, but also medically. Um, and uh, being a hospitalist met, met all of those um, kind of needs for me. I think to add to what Dr. Kaplan mentioned, Dr. Yu, one thing that has really stuck with me, and I think, you know, uh, applies to any career medicine or not, is to try to imagine your career in three kind of segments. So early career, middle career, and late career, and try to imagine how your career might evolve. And I think in the field of hospital medicine, it can really evolve to anything that you want it to be. You have a great mix of like clinical work. I have many colleagues that are doing quality improvement, medical education. They are also leaders in the hospital. They can also pursue bench research. And I think the idea that your career can evolve to fit your professional and personal needs really appeals to me. And it makes the job exciting because it's always changing. You know, being the, on the forefront of the COVID pandemic, of this whole monkeypox outbreak. You know, we're doing a lot of exciting things in the hospital. Um, not to say that it's not also as exciting outpatient, um, but I felt that especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, 
it's really challenging being a primary care physician. And I really applaud Dr. Rudder for really filling the need, especially in our primary care community, um, because I just have seen in terms of like televisits and other kind of changes in primary care, that it makes it really difficult to provide the high quality outpatient continuity that we come to expect of ourselves. Dr. Rudder, do you want to respond? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I have been practicing in the outpatient setting towards the you know, within the past year. So I wasn't necessarily at the the forefront of the early days where there was so much uncertainty and upheaval. Um, But I will say that I have experienced the explosion of Paxlovid prescribing um, and and other um, changes to primary care practice um, in the outpatient setting, which I hadn't uh, been as familiar with as a resident um, doing primary care, um, because I, I did actually take a period of time between residency and and my current outpatient practice doing a general internal medicine fellowship that Stephanie, that Dr. Brownthal is doing now. But I will say, I, I think that, you know, just speaking a little bit to some of the changes in primary care practice um, related to telehealth, I think in a lot of ways, we've found that it has been able to enhance care, particularly for for patients who are not able um, or less able to to come to in-person appointments. Um, And so vulnerable patients that we might not be able to reach otherwise, um, this provides a way for us to do that. Um, And there have been a lot of exciting, you know, (laughs) on the inpatient and outpatient side, technologic advances that make us better able to monitor home health, um, including remote, you know, remote blood pressure monitoring. Um, There are a lot of um, programs for remote monitoring of cardiovascular health, um, including patients with heart failure. Um, And then, you know, there's a little, now we sort of have ubiquity of home pulse oximeters and heart rate monitors um, and advances, you know, coming up in terms of outpatient cardiac event monitoring. And um, and so I, I think there's a lot that we're able to do remotely, which is exciting um, and hopefully going to sort of help improve health on a population scale. Um, and, and one of my passions is preventative care. And, um, and so I, I see this as a very exciting time to be um, in outpatient medicine. You know, uh, Rudolf Virchow, the founder of cellular pathology back in the 19th century, said um, medicine's a social science. And um, I, I, I think he was I think he's right. And I think that, um, you know, talking with all of you kind of bears that out. So when I was a kid and working in the medical lab um, 50 years ago, you know, there are all these people, you know, who had practices and, and little black bags and, and running around the hospital. Look into the future, if you would. What what would you? What's your prediction about what medicine will be in say twenty five years? What would you What would you think, Doctor Yu? I don't know what the future holds, um, <laughs> but I do think that I'm hopeful that we'll be able to keep patients out of the hospital. You know, as though, although I'm an inpatient hospital doctor, my goal is always to try to keep people out of the hospital because if they're coming to the hospital, that means they're sick enough 
to need to come to the hospital and to stay in the hospital overnight. Like our goal is always to work closely with, you know, the primary care doctors, the outpatient teams, even community organizations like Healthcare for the Homeless to really keep people healthy and to keep people out of the hospital. So, you know, I hope to see in the future some greater collaboration and integration amongst inpatient and outpatient providers. But that's that's an interesting that's an interesting I, answer to Dr. Yu. I think just to clarify, I don't think anything will happen to the specialty. You know, it's not just our efforts to keep people healthy and it, with those efforts failing that bring people to the hospital. It's all the social determinants of health, you know, not having access to health care, all like those disparities that we have in place that we really need to battle, all the structural things that are affecting people's health, those are much larger issues to deal with that will continue to be with us. And I suspect people will still need to come to the hospital, but I think we can still do a lot more altogether in keeping people healthy and safe at home and maybe decreasing the burden of disease. Is there a question you wish I had asked? Um. Dr. Brunthal. Internal medicine has become significantly more diverse than it once was. So the doctor with the little black bag that went in and out of the hospital now has a lot of different options, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, academic, private practice, administration, um, public policy. And so for all of us who choose to stay within the field of general internal medicine, I do think that there certainly are people who keep their identities as either private, um, excuse me, primary care physicians or hospitalists, but most of us identify as, as internists first, and we see the breadth of possibilities ahead of us, and I think that's what keeps the field so attractive. Is there a question you're glad I didn't ask? Dr. Yu. Well, one question I thought you were going to ask is, you know, as a nation, we have such a shortage of primary care physicians, you know, compared to other developed nations, like, for example, Canada, the United Kingdom, like, what can we, we be doing better as a medical society or society in general to, you know, increase the number of primary care physicians, because all of us need primary care physicians, you know, the population does. And it's like that really strong primary care network that keeps people healthy, as Dr. Rudder said, on a population level. So I thought you were going to ask us maybe something along those lines. Consider the question asked. What, 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 is, the, what is the answer to that? Nurse practitioners um, have really come to the fore and uh, uh, not that they're going to replace internists, but they're certainly doing the kind of work in the clinic and making some diagnoses more so than than they were doing when I was watching the people with the little black bags walking around. So are, are nurse practitioners a way to address this? Dr. Rudder. I think that this issue um, needs to be addressed at many different levels. I think it's more than just a, a numbers game. I think that we need systematic um, change within um, primary care in terms of how we value it as a as a society um, and and how we back that up with financial reimbursement to be quite frank um, I think that for a long time um, our healthcare system has sort of undervalued or devalued preventative care um, and instead the way that we uh, pay for healthcare means that the more 
sort of the more intensive or extensive the procedure or or site of care, the the greater the financial return for the institution, which is you know something I'm sure that 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 um, everybody here and listeners have have come across and thought about. Um, but I think that it will have to start with with changes on um, on that level, and then um, with more resources, I think that um, primary care systems would be better equipped to care for patients and the the um, stressors um, that we face as a system that is stretched a bit thin um, might be might be reduced, um, and so that includes a you know, many different staff, um, social workers, case managers, um, mental health, you know, mental health providers, community resource specialists, administrative staff, nursing staff, medical assistants, um, more resources would allow us to, to better provide all of that wraparound care for our patients. Um, because right now, a lot of the onus of that care um, in, in certain places does end up falling to um, the primary care provider, whether that's an MD, NP, PA, um, and that can be that can be overwhelming on top of um, sort of what we consider more strict like clinical work. All right, well, I, I think I'm going to send you back all off <clears throat> to, to cure people. I wanna thank you, uh, Dr. Rutter, Dr. Yu, Dr. Kaplan, Dr. Shah, and Dr. Brownthal for spending the time uh, with me this afternoon. And um, I, I wish you luck in your careers and um, your patients are all lucky. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That was our 296th edition. We come to you from the writers and editors of the NEJM Journal Watch series our executive producer is Kristen Kelly, and I'm Joe Elia. Thank you for listening.